Uh, Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, you are surely a paradox to us. You are uh, a seeming contradiction that is beyond our comprehension. That you are both a transcendent God who stands outside of time and eternity, who upholds all things, who existed eternally before even time began. And yet you are also the God who has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ, who has taken on human flesh, who has become small, who has endured death. The you who are eternal died. The you who are timeless entered time. That you who are the Creator became creation by taking on flesh. And so, Lord, we marvel at you, but we praise you that although we cannot understand your greatness, that it matters not because we receive the blessings of salvation in Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus' humiliation, we're forgiven. That because He who is eternal took on flesh and blood and spilled His blood, that we have all the things we just sang about, peace with you and hope of eternal life. And so, Lord, we're Your people this morning, not because we understand You, but because we love You, but because You have done everything for us. And so, Lord, we look forward to eternity with You, where we will grow more and more in the knowledge of Your greatness. Lord, thank You for this church. Thank You for the work that You're doing here. Thank You for our partners in world missions. I thank You for our missionaries who are here with us this morning. Uh, Rich and Dee Donaldson have been our missionaries for decades in Peru. And Nancy Van Antwerp has been our missionary in Japan. Lord, thank You that they're here with us. And we pray that You would bless them, God, as they move forward in different phases of their life and ministry. Bless us, Lord, today as we hear from them during the Sunday school hour. Lord, thank You for uh, this congregation. I thank You for all the ministries that are starting this fall. This is September, Lord. You know how busy it is here, so we just pray Your blessing on the Disciple Training Institute, the small group leaders and their small groups, all the different children's ministries, Sunday school, Kids for Christ, uh, the nursery. Lord, just all the different programs, the couples ministry and the men's ministry and, um, Lord, the, the women's ministry and the senior fellowship. God, all these different ministries in the church, they just need Your blessing. Lord, our desire is not just to run a bunch of programs but to see people grow in their faith in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that these different programs and ministries would bear spiritual fruit in people's lives this year. And we turn them into your, over to your hands. Lord, bless those who are sick in our church. We pray, God, for Orville Lim, for Hank Davies, for Karen Lyons. Lord, for others who are ill, that you would strengthen their bodies. And now, Lord, be with us as we open up your word. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, we are, uh, I am just so dull And unless your Holy Spirit helps me to understand the Bible, it just goes right past me. So I pray, Lord, that as I preach this sermon, that you, Holy Spirit, would be preaching 350 sermons to each heart here, that each individual person would hear a word from you, Father, as we open up your word. And so we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we invite any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to go to children's church. And any kids who are in the kids' choir can go to kids' choir too. And with the rest of you, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1034. Luke chapter 14, and today we're studying verses 1 to 11. It's like a stampede. I didn't know there were so many kids there. Here they come. They keep coming. Luke chapter 14. And uh, we're studying verses 1 to 11. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 1034. 
And let me just read the text. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. And when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I read a little story, an anecdote about a time when Benjamin Franklin, when he was a young man, traveled to Boston to visit the then aged famous preacher Cotton Mather to get some advice from Cotton and apparently they hung out together at Cotton's house for a little bit. And after they were done, uh, uh, Cotton Mather showed Benjamin Franklin out through a side passage. It was apparently a very low passage and it had a low beam running across it. You know, the old pilgrim houses are just, you know, the ceiling thing. And, and it was very low. And uh, as they were walking out, Cotton Mather, who was in the back, started saying to Franklin, Stoop! Stoop! And, you know, Franklin didn't know what he was talking about. And wham! Hit his head on the beam. And Cotton Mather, never missing an opportunity to preach, uh, said, you know, you are young and you have your whole life ahead of you. Stoop as you go through life and you will avoid many headaches. <laughs> and that's the point of today's text. You know, last Sunday, if you were here, we were studying about the entrance to the kingdom of God. How is it that we enter the kingdom of God? How is it that we are saved? How do you get to heaven? And what we saw last Sunday was that Jesus said, he used the imagery of a doorway. He said there's a narrow door. And so to enter the kingdom of God, you can't just sort of get there accidentally. It's not enough to be in close proximity to the door. Remember we studied that. It's not enough just to be near religious things. You have to personally enter into the kingdom of God. And it's not enough to have a religious family. It's not about your pedigree. You have to purposely choose yourself to enter into God's kingdom. So the door is narrow. It takes intentionality. But the thing we're going to see today is that not only is the door narrow, it's apparently also low. Uh, and so to get into the kingdom of God not only takes striving, it also takes stooping. It not only takes intentionality, it also takes humility. And so that's the point of today's text. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So the story starts out mundane enough. It's Sabbath. Jesus probably went to the synagogue. Remember, he's traveling to Jerusalem. And uh, there in the synagogue, uh, he meets some people and they invite him over to dinner afterwards. So, you know, it's like us. You go to church, you go out to lunch afterwards. Instead, this time he's going over to someone's house to eat. And uh, so, you know, at the service, it seems like kind of a regular story, like Jesus goes to some guy's house. But like any social gathering, there are always unspoken narratives 
operating under the surface. And in any group of people who are gathered together, there's always, you know, the story that, oh, well, did you know that so-and-so? And So there's, there's a narrative operating underneath the surface here that we have to take a closer look at. Uh, whose house is Jesus eating at? Is it with a Pharisee? And so he's with probably a group of Pharisees because they ate together. And the reason the Pharisees ate together was they were very scrupulous about their religious and ceremonial purity. They obeyed a whole body of uh, laws that had kind of developed over the centuries. In addition to the Old Testament, they had all these other laws called the oral tradition that dealt with ritual purity and ceremonial purity. And so they ate in select groups because they wanted to make sure they were eating with other people who were also ritually pure. And you know, so they ate together. They had tel- t- uh, table fellowships together. Um, and not only that, but we know that the Pharisees had it out for Jesus, that they were increasingly growing at odds with him and his ministry. So there's there's hostility under the surface here. Notice that it says in verse one, he was being carefully watched. That, that's a negative kind of term. They're watching to see if he's going to obey the laws of God the way they think the laws of God should be obeyed. Um, the other thing I see is that there's a, a sort of a social issue here because notice he's at the house of a prominent Pharisee. In Greek, it literally says a leader of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Pharisees. So they got, they're with the head guy, like the most important elite leader of the Pharisees in town, the religious guy that everyone looks to. It's at his house. So that tells me that this isn't just any gathering, but it's the social elite who are probably being invited to this. So this story is not just about Jesus having lunch at some dude's house. This is uh, a story charged with religious issues, with issues of ceremonial law, with issues of purity, and with issues of social hierarchy. You know, who is in and who is out, and who belongs and who doesn't. Which makes verse 2 so much more interesting when you understand those uh, forces that are operating below the surface. Look at verse 2. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, uh, I didn't know what dropsy was. I had to look it up. Uh, and the reason I guess I don't know what it is is because it's an outdated medical term. It's not really something. It, it's what they call today edema or swelling. It's when fluid builds up typically in the limbs or the abdomen. And it's not a disease. It's a symptom of disease. Uh, from what I understand, typically congestive heart failure or uh, kidney disease. And because of that, the body isn't processing the fluids the right way. And so they build up. And y- you can tell someone who has this because... Their, their abdomen is swollen or their limbs are swollen. And so uh, here's this person uh, standing in their midst. And th- the point is, because he is diseased, he is ritually impure. Uh, that's the thing. He's right with all of these guys who are obsessed with ritual purity. And here's this ritually impure person. And because he's ritually impure, he's at the bottom of the social ladder. Because he wouldn't have been considered a leader. He couldn't be the prominent Pharisee. So it's just a very interesting situation in contrast. It's sort of a study in contrast. You have this man who is ritually unclean among people obsessed with ritual purity. You have this man who is at the bottom of the social scale in the midst of the social elite in his village. I mean, it's so strange uh, that some commentators have suggested, uh, just sort of hypothesizing, that maybe he was even brought in to put... Jesus to the test, because he, he just wouldn't belong in that kind of situation. But who knows, that's just conjecture. You know, it would be like if you had a black tie wedding reception with some really elite, prominent, well-known people being married, and into the reception stumbles a drunken vagrant who's just smelly and, you know, staggering around and, you know, grabbing drinks and, you know, eating food, and everyone's like, whoo, you know, someone, could someone get this guy out of here? This is just so inappropriate. And so here's this guy with dropsy. 
like, oh, what is he doing here? Oh, dear. But the real question is, what's Jesus going to do about it? Now all eyes are on Jesus. How will he respond? And they're specifically wondering, probably, will he heal the man? Because this is the issue. Uh, Keeping the laws of God. That's what the Pharisees are all about. And one of the laws is don't work on the Sabbath. And, you know, healing seems like work. And so I wonder if Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. I wonder if he's going to break God's laws the way they interpreted them. And so Jesus, not one to beat around the bush, not one to play social nuances, just speaks up. I love verse 3. So Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Wait, what do you guys think? Can I heal this guy? And everyone's like, oh dear, oh, that was very direct. But he just puts it right out there. Can I heal this guy? In verse 4, they remained silent. Because, you know, what are they going to say? No. Well, then you seem like a clod. What are you going to say? Yes. But then all the other guys are going to think that you're siding with Jesus. So, you know, they're like, mm, and, and they just look around and no one answers. So what does Jesus do? Receiving no response, he takes hold of the man and heals him and sends him away. And you know, as I was studying this passage, just in my own, for my own personal devotion, I think that verse there is the one that touched me the most, that Jesus took hold of the man. And just say, okay, you, uh, you know, sick guy, um, you know, be healed. He went over to this person who was the outcast, who was the unclean, and he put his hands on him touched him. That's what I love about Jesus. It's one of the reasons I find Jesus so compelling is that he was the guy who crossed all of those social taboos and religious taboos and he touched lepers and he touched tax collectors and he touched people with diseases and he grabs hold of him. The touch of God falls upon the lowly person because the entrance into the kingdom of God is low. And so that's where the kingdom of God expresses itself, is on this man. And then verse 5, Jesus kind of drives his point home. He says, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not not immediately pull him out? I mean, of course you would. And they had nothing to say, verse 6. Wherever the kingdom of God comes, it always flips everything upside down. When God's kingdom comes it invariably inverts and subverts and sabotages our social constructions. When God's kingdom comes into your life, it will just upheave your life. It's like when Jesus walked into the temple and started turning over all the tables of the money changers. You know that story? He starts kicking tables and knocking things over. That's what happens when the kingdom of God comes in, except in a good way, in a positive way. God's kingdom overturns all of our you know, nice, comfortable, religious structures and all of our nice, comfortable social hierarchies. And God's kingdom just throws it upside down. In God's kingdom, who's the person who receives the blessing of God? It's the sick guy at the bottom of the heap. And here's Jesus teaching the religious leaders. I mean, that's an overturning, isn't it? That Jesus is going to sit here and instruct the religious leaders on the ways of God. But everything is flipped in the kingdom of God. He subverts it all, including how one enters the kingdom of God. And so what we have in verses 7 and following, if you go from verse 7 to verse 24, is now that Jesus has just shaken up the snow globe and broken all the rules, and everyone is now like, Whew, you know, what's going on here? Now, he, of course, he has the teachable moment. And so like Cotton Mather, he never misses a chance to teach. And he jumps in, 
and he starts preaching. And so what verses 7 to 24 are, I believe, are teachings prompted from this incident. So the incident is the springboard for the teachings. So what I'm going to do the next several Sundays is we're going to look through what Jesus has to say at this dinner party based upon this incident. So I have to keep coming back to that healing of the man because I think that's the launching pad for all these teachings. But today we're just going to look at verses 7 to 11. And what he's basically saying there is that the kingdom of God has a door and that door is not only narrow, but it's low. And so to enter God's kingdom, we have to be humble and lowly that God's blessings come upon those at the bottom, not at those at the top. So, look at verse 7. It says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So now Jesus is the one doing the watching. Now Jesus is carefully observing them. The tables have been turned. And he notices that they're all kind of, you know, vying for position for the the seats at the banquet uh, to be in the places of honor. Um, you know, every society has its places of honor, and apparently in ancient culture, the seat of honor at a banquet was the one closest to the host. So uh, one commentator I read said that sometimes they'd have a U-shaped table, and the host would sit at the, the bottom of the U, if you want to think about it that way. He would sit right there. Then the seats of honor would be on either side of the host, and then the seats of honor would kind of work their way outwards. So to sit next to the host was the most privileged seat. And Jesus kind of watches them and he notices, you know, how they're all caught up in the worldly system of social hierarchy and structure. And um, I was thinking, you know, this is just innate to us as human beings, isn't it? We create these things. Little kids create social hierarchies. They haven't even been taught it. They just do it. Uh, Let me ask you this. On the school bus, where is the seat of honor? The back. Right? in, In fact, in my daughter's school bus, it's very explicit. Fifth graders sit in the back. And and maybe if you're a really cool, accepted fourth grader, you might get invited to the back. And then the third graders and all the way up to kindergartners sit in the front of the bus. My daughter told us, I forget she was in second or third grade, she sat a little too far back. And I mean, the uproar. You know, the, oh, the humanity. What is a second grader doing three-fourths of the way back in the bus? And so they, you know, they screamed at her and yelled at her and there's kind of like this riot until she finally just went back up forward because there's so much social pressure. Those was the seat of honor. Or, you know, go to a junior high cafeteria, find a junior higher, and say, point to me the cool kids' table. Well, they know. They're like, eh, it's that one. That one's pretty close, but that's the real one. And, you know, they, everyone knows what the food chain was. I always knew what the food chain was because I was always looking at it from the bottom, looking up. And, uh, you know, I mean, let's just say when you're in junior high, hypothetically, and you play video games in Dungeons and Dragons, you are at the bottom of the food chain. <laughs> you know. And so uh, there's always these hierarchies in all of these uh, schools. Things We have them in our offices. You know which is, are the good offices. You know which are the choice cubicles. And you know when somebody leaves or retires, you go slide into their... You know, and if you get pumped up to this office, well, that's a sign of honor. And so there's all this vying for positions of who gets which office, who gets which desk. Um, Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what is the hardest instrument to play in an orchestra? And without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. Everyone wants to be first chair violin, but it's hard to find someone who will play second chair violin or second chair French horn or second chair flute because everyone wants to be first chair. And so that's just how we are. We have these seats of honor. We have these places But again, the kingdom of God comes and it overturns and subverts all of the ways of the world. And so in verse 8, 
He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat, then humiliated you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of your fellow guests. Now, does that bother any of you? I was bothered when I read that. This I really wrestled with this teaching here. In fact, for a long time when I was studying this passage, because it seems to me like Jesus is just giving very worldly, kind of secular advice. Like seven tips for you know, making a big splash at the Pharisaic soiree, you know, or something like that. It's like, like if you want to get ahead in the world, it almost seems like manipulative, like a con. Like, I'll tell you what you do. When you go into this party, sit in the low place, and then they'll invite you up. <laughs> you know, it's like, what does this have to do with the kingdom? Why is this spiritual? So I, I really wrestled with this teaching because I thought this was sort of below Jesus. You know, what, what is this doing in the Bible? But then uh, I finally realized, back at the end of verse 7, I don't know why it took me so long to see this. I'm just kind of slow. Verse 7, he told them this parable. I was like, oh, it's a parable. It's a parable. In other words, this is not just advice for how to trick people out at a party. This is an uh, analogy, is what it is. But instead of telling a fictional story, the difference is the parable is simply uh, using something that's right there in front of their faces. So it's an analogy of what the kingdom of God is like. In other words, it's not how to just get ahead socially. It's, he's saying this is how you move forward in the kingdom of God. And the point is in verse 11. There's the teaching. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, to enter the kingdom of God, I have to be humble. The way into the kingdom of God is not by pushing myself forward, which is what we do. We have a resume. You put your best resume out there. You go to the 25th high school reunion and you walk in and you say, yeah, well, you know what I've done with my life is, and you show your pictures and you try to put your best foot forward. You know, you have people over to your house and, and so you clean your house and you, you know, put the, the new car out front and the, you put the plasma TV in a conspicuous place so people can see it and go, oh, and you say, oh, yeah, that little thing. <laughs> you know, and this whole thing. So you, you try to exalt yourself. That's just what we do. You don't intentionally make yourself look worse than you are. And yet Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God, the way in is by stooping and going low and humbling ourselves. Um, and so to enter the kingdom of God, we have to repent. That is the entrance to the kingdom of God, is admitting our lowliness before God, not trying to exalt ourselves. And you go ask the average person, how do you enter the kingdom of God? How do you get to heaven? What's the average person say? I mean, you know, we've talked about this before. You know. What do they say? How do you get to heaven? Be a good person. Try to be nice. In other words, exalt yourself morally so that you can come to God with a sort of resume and say, well, God, <clears throat> you'll notice here, uh, this Thanksgiving, I was actually serving at a homeless shelter. I didn't eat Thanksgiving in my house. And uh, you'll notice here, and, and you know, we run down our list of moral attainments. That's kind of conventional wisdom on how you get to heaven is by building yourself up, doing enough good deeds or religious rituals or whatever so that when God gets to heaven, he looks at your resume and says, wow, that's, that's good. All right, you're in. You got the job. Right. It's not that. Because in the kingdom of God, if you exalt yourself like that, if you think we can come before God with our petty moral trinkets and 
earn our way into heaven or bribe our way in. We're going to be humbled. Instead, and this goes against our intuition and our instincts, but then again, we're sinful, so our intuitions and instincts are usually off. But the way into the kingdom of God is by going low. It's by repentance. The, the way to come to Christ is to come to Him and say, I am a sinner. I have spiritual dropsy. My soul is swollen with sin. I'm swollen with guilt. I have not kept your laws. I, I haven't loved you. I don't hardly ever think of you. And, and you know, when I do good things, it's usually out of a sense of pride or wanting to show off. So I have bad motives. And I don't love people around me. I use people. Lord, I am such a fallen sinner. I can't even begin to deserve to come into your kingdom. But if you'll just have mercy on me, Jesus, and save me, you can save me. That is repentance. And it's on our hands and knees, repenting before God. And Jesus says, if you will humble yourself, then you'll be exalted into the kingdom. Um, and which I think is a good diagnostic for ourselves. Have you ever truly repented of your sins before Christ? You know, Some people think they're Christians. Yeah, I'm saved. Well, I don't know. If you've never truly come to that place of admitting that you are a sinner in need of the salvation of Christ and throwing yourself completely on the mercy of Christ, if that's not in some way or another part of your faith narrative, then maybe you haven't gone through the, the door. Because what I do know is the kingdom of God has a narrow door that's also low. And we don't go strutting through it if we're going to pull a Benjamin Franklin against the beam. We have to get down and humble ourselves before God. But humility is not just the way we enter the kingdom. I believe that humility is uh, an enduring, non-negotiable characteristic of true Christians. That true followers of Jesus grow in humility over time. St. Augustine was once asked what the cardinal virtue of the Christian is, and he said humility. And someone asked him, what's the second most important virtue, though? He said, humility. <laughs> and the third most important virtue? You know, humility. Uh, we need to be humble. And let me just be clear what humility is and isn't. I don't think humility is walking around like, I'm such a loser. Oh, I can't do anything right. I'll never get a date. I just... Uh, you know, I, I mess everything up I get into. Nobody likes me. I don't, why do I even go out anymore? I mean, I would kill myself, but I'd probably ruin it and not do it right. And so, you know, if people talk like this, they beat themselves up. That's not humility. I don't know what that is. I mean, someone can give me a term for that. I don't know. But hum, I, I think you can be humble and bold and confident. You know, humility is not uh, contrary to leadership. People can be very strong wise, happy, confident leaders and still be humble about it. See, what humility is, humility is just seeing yourself in proportion to God. That's all. It's just seeing who you really are. It's not self-hatred and self-loathing, but it's simply standing next to God and going, okay, I'm this, uh, uh, got it. (laughs) You're God. And you're great. And anything that I do is simply you working through me. And so, God, I I love you and I look at you. And, Lord, I am not righteous, but the righteousness of Jesus is mine. And so it's just knowing who you are in relationship to God who saves us. Um, I think the humble person doesn't even think of themselves at all, really. I think obsessing on yourself and thinking about yourself is kind of a form of pride. That that when you're really humble, you, you know, the way to true humility is just thinking about God, letting your thoughts be so filled up with how great God is, delighting in the awesomeness of God. And humility kind of takes care of itself. And there's a joy in it. There's a freedom in true humility. 
And so humility needs to mark us in the church, and yet unfortunately the church is a place where there's often a lack of humility, there's pride. Sometimes um, people, I think, who are frustrated in life come into the church and they can be somebody in the church, and so all the issues kind of get poured out in the church, and the pastors do that too. Pastors struggle. You know, just people, they come into the church and it becomes a place for pride. People don't want to serve, sometimes they want to be in the front. Uh, They want to be in prominent places of leadership. They want to teach. They want to be visible. Um, This has happened a number of times. I wish I was making this up, but unfortunately this has happened a number of times where somebody uh, new to the church will come forward after a worship service and will come to Jennifer Bull, our worship director, and say, Hi, I just want to introduce myself. I'm a soloist, and I love singing solos. That's my gift. And uh, I I would like to sing at Christmas and Easter, if that's okay with you. And uh, I mean, literally. And, and Jennifer will say something like, Hi, I'm Jennifer. What's your name? <laughs> you know, can I, you know, who are you? I don't even know you. And it's like, well, I really like to sing. And, and, and just really pushing themselves forward. And it's like, wow. You know, well, we don't have an opening right now in Soloist, but would you mind changing some diapers in the nursery? That's what she should say. Because it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not into that. I mean, I don't want to be with little kids. I don't want to be up in the sound booth where no one sees me. I don't want to just be handing out things as an usher. I want to be teaching, or I want to be singing, or I want to be uh, leading a ministry. I want to be in a position of influence. And it's so hard to say, what do you need? And I'll do it. But let me tell you, those are the people that always bless us as a staff. The people who will come to one of us and say, hey Seth, what do you need? I know you've got this thing going on. I'll just do whatever. Or can I just help out and clean up? But you know, people like that who have that kind of heart, even if they're leaders, those are the people who bless and strengthen the church of God. And humility, oh, not only is it a characteristic we all need, I think anyone in leadership needs to be humble. In fact, I would say the more authority and influence you're given in Christian leadership, the more humble you need to be so that you don't screw it up. Because why do churches fall apart? What's the number one reason? I, mean, you know, I don't have a statistics, but I just anecdotally. Isn't it when people who are pastors or leaders or influential people in the church get full of themselves. That's what breaks up churches. And, and they start fighting. And this one has an agenda and that one's offended. And uh, Pastor Seth, our assistant pastor, when, when he uh, was in Africa as a missionary for, what, 12 years, he, he learned this uh, proverb, he told me. I've, I've always remembered it. The African proverb is, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Right. And when leaders get full of themselves... And when pastors become control freaks, and when elders get an agenda that they want to drive, that's what ruins churches more than anything. And so I think leaders, I don't care who you are, I don't care what gifts you have, I don't care if you're a great public speaker, if you're an amazing manager in the business world, if, uh, you know, whatever competencies and skills you have, if you're not humble, then just spare the church, you know? We need humble leadership in the church. But not only uh, is it in the church, I just think humility should mark our whole lives. Are you humble enough to, you know, clean up your kid's vomit at 2 in the morning? Are you humble enough to help fold laundry? Are you humble enough to stay after and sweep up? Are you humble enough to take the crummy jobs at work that no one else wants to do and say, you know what, I, hey, I'll, I'll do that. Like, oh, okay. You know, and everyone will laugh like, oh, you got stuck with it. But people will notice. Um, are we humble enough to listen? I think one of the greatest uh, signs of humility is people who listen. I think people who talk all the time and dominate conversations. I always wonder you know, where they're coming from. 
you know, do you really have that much to say? You know, I barely have enough to say like once a week for a half hour. You know, like what do you have to say that's so important? I love listeners because that, that means they're putting themselves back and asking you questions and listening to you. And are we humble enough to ask for forgiveness? You know, can I come to my wife and say, honey, I really screwed up when I said that and I'm sorry. Can you ask forgiveness from a child? Are you a parent who knows how to say sorry to your children? I think that's a rare thing. Um, it, that's a hard lesson. I, I, I had to do that this summer. I was, uh, our family went on this camping trip and we went out for this hike and th- there were these rocks. You know, kids just get onto little things and they were, I don't know if it was like iron pyrite or whatever, but it looked like fool's gold, you know, it was shiny and they never seen rocks like this and they're like, oh, and they're, you know, collecting these rocks. And then it was time to go and this big fight broke out among them about who had what rock and they were grabbing rocks and, you know, they just, they turn random things into commodities and so they're fighting and arguing and, and I'm just trying to get everyone going. I'm just trying to get it moving forward. I didn't know what the fight was about. I just kind of vaguely knew. I just got so sick of them yelling. So I went over to my daughter who was like, hey, this is rocking. And I just grabbed it out of her hand and I just threw it in the woods. I was like, let's go, you know. You know, this is the hard thing about being a parent is not only making rules and keeping rules, but figuring out what the just consequences are for rules and fractions. It's so hard. So, I mean, I think something should have been done, but I think that I way overdid it on the justice thing. Maybe, you know, I didn't even take time to investigate. Maybe she was right. Maybe the other kids were being unjust to her, and her rock, you know, was her rock, and maybe I fouled that one up. But I didn't even take time to find out. I just kind of, you know, did the big grumpy dad thing and whipped the rock into the woods, and I just saw her, like, you know, just saw the, you know, this broken sort of look come over her face. And so... I was like, ah. so later on that day, you know, I had to, we were out for a walk. She and I were walking in the, the water, and I was like, you know, I said, I'm really sorry I threw your rock away. I said, I know you guys were kind of being wild, but I said, that was too big of a consequence for what you're doing, and, you know, I'm, I'm just really sorry. And, uh, you know, to hear a, uh, to hear a, a, a nine-year-old say to you, Daddy, I forgive you. It's a beautiful thing. And so we need to be humble. We need to be willing to uh, lower ourselves as Christians. And the closer we get to God, the more humble we should become. And the humility that we, should, we have is not just something that Jesus commands. It's something that Jesus exemplified. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus lowered himself and not only is our example, but to save us. In other words, if Jesus hadn't humbled himself, there wouldn't even be a door to go through. The door to the kingdom of heaven is made out of crosswood. And if he hadn't gone to the cross, there would be no door. And so as followers of Christ, as those who name the name of Jesus, we need to be willing to humble ourselves uh, and follow his example. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. And having been found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's uh, stand.